What is up, you guys? Welcome to another episode of the NC Raw podcast. Today's guests are a father and daughter combo, Jenny Reach and Dr. Tom Reach of Reach Recovery come on the podcast to talk with us about medicated-assisted treatment and all other aspects of recovery. Uh, It was a fun conversation. Dr. Tom is hilarious. Uh, and Jenny has some significant lived experience, and they both share parts of their story as well as kind of what Reach Recovery does on the daily out in Asheville. Uh, totally an awesome conversation, a lot of fun, uh, fun, fun people to be around. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope there's some good information in there for you as well. So give some love to Dr. Tom and Jenny Reach. Living the miracle, standing divisible, connected to God in my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible. Totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal. Used to be a criminal, living so minimal. But things have changed in my life, is going through different intervals. Finding that balance is significantly difficult. Timing is everything, so my timing is critical. Rhyming is literal, the unforgettable. That's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable. I give respect to you, know that I am respectable. I've always wanted acceptance, is that acceptable? I give the rival expected to be exceptional And I'm a grown man, handle business like a professional I am incredible, Leo conventional And you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. Good evening, Jenny Reach, Dr. Tom Reach. Good evening. How y'all doing tonight? Amazing. I uh, appreciate you guys coming over. Fighting the traffic and the long, uh, long battle to get here, I uh, I commend your determination to make it. Right, um, got dealt a little bit of a curveball, but we're here and we're doing it. Well, I would have driven half half again as long to get drugs. So, uh, boom! Exactly, right. exactly, exactly. <laughs> you can't stop us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, um, me and Jenny were just talking before we were kind of getting settled in. And she was like, how did you, how did you, how did we come across your radar to like invite me on? Like what even, how did that even happen? And I alluded to the fact that there may be a little bit of history. And I told her that I was not going to disclose that until we sat down. And so my question for you, my first question, right? Are you ready? <laughs> well, shoot. My first question is, what do you know about the book Dharma Bums? Have you ever read the book Dharma Bums? Think, think about it. I think it was sent to me in the mail. Okay. Tell me more. So there was a forward book thing, like mm-hmm. pay it forward book group that mm-hmm. I was a part of. Mm-hmm. 
Am I on the right you're on, trail? You're, you're going down the rabbit okay. hole, yeah. And so I, like, I was given uh, two or three different five people's addresses to send my favorite books to, and then like my email would be, or my, e- my address would be given to someone else for, to receive five books. That's correct. From total random people. Uh-huh. I sent you a book. In like 2016? I, I think it's still in the trunk of my car. Is it? Yeah. You never read it? No, I still have it. Okay. No, it's, it's in my car to like read when I get stuck somewhere. Yeah. You could have read it when wow. you're on your way here. Yeah. So um, in way back, way back in like 2000, I moved. Let me just take a step back. I moved to North Carolina in February of 2015 from Florida, like right out of a treatment center, like two weeks out of the treatment center. Checked out of the treatment center. I cleared some things up with my probation officer, meaning I paid him what I owed him. And uh, I packed my things and I moved up here. And um, I moved up with my significant other who was still using at the time. And I was able to make that last about 14 months Mm -hmm. before the wheels came off of that, surprisingly. I know. (laughs) I know. I was a student. I had like activities to like keep me busy. But, um, we had ended up parting ways about 15 months later and um, I broke my leg and my foot like two or three weeks after the breakup. My leg and my foot and my ankle, a bunch of pins and things put into a major surgery. I couldn't walk or put any weight on it for 90 days. No weight, no nothing. Uh, and being in recovery, I wasn't taking any type of opiates. Sounds like your significant was. other was really pissed. It was a rough, <laughs> yeah. It was the most like Talk about I, a breakup. Yeah, I was faced with some serious, significant challenges, uh, very pretty early on. And um, so once I, I went back to Florida, stayed at my brother's house for those ninety days to heal up because I couldn't drive, I couldn't get around. Um, I live up on a cabin about 4,000 feet up in Cashers, Glenville area, not too far from here. And when I moved back to North Carolina, um, I somehow, I don't know how, but throughout my entire like active addiction, like I stayed away from social media and I never joined or had an account. I was like, no one has time for social media when you're when using, you're using. <laughs> Yeah. I was ghosted <laughs> off of that thing, but I found out that there's a lot of like active recovery groups on like Facebook and stuff. And like, there's a lot of information out there. I mentioned I was a part of the refuge recovery fellowship. And so, um, I found out that they were sharing a lot of information. Refuge recovery was as an organization. A lot of the information was being shared. It was such a new kind of thing. And a lot of information that I wasn't privy to if I wasn't on social media. Um, so I decided to like join, then and moving back, I didn't really know a whole lot of people. We parted ways with the only person I really knew up here. And so, like, I just dove into these, like, Facebook groups, and I sent, like, hundreds of friend requests to anybody and everybody that appeared to be in the recovery circles because I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it the right way. I'm going to actively engage myself with and surround myself with people who are choosing to live the same type of lifestyle. And somehow... One of those, you were one of the people, but who I became, air quotes, friends with. Um, somehow, I got into this book sharing club thing, and um, I, they said to share, send somebody like one of your favorite books, and they sent me a name and an address to mail it to. 
And the only reason why I was able to put this all together is because your name and your PO box is still like in my, I didn't know it saves it, but it's still in my Amazon delivery. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like when I asked you like, where do you want to ship the package to? Like your name's still in there. And so like I put it together when I ordered something like a couple months back, I was like, oh wait, hang on a second. And then I could click on it and see like what it was. And it was the Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac, which was um, a book that came recommended to me through, if you're like, there's like way back when I first started, there was a list of um, like, if you're interested in Buddhism, meditation, that sort of thing, these are like your five must reads, you know? And that was one of them. And it was a fantastic book. And so I was like, I'm gonna, that's the book that I'm going to pass on. So instead of like sending me my copy, I just went on Amazon and just ordered one. And That's what you're supposed to do when you give someone a book. Yeah. Keep your own copy. Yeah, give for it a sure. One. For sure. So that's the whole story. But that's yeah, I've it. read a lot of Jack Carraway. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, I on have the road read the book. And, mm-hmm. Exactly. And I don't know. I, he's an author I really, really like. Mm-hmm. So like, I remember the book. Mm-hmm. I just, I never thought of where I got it from. <laughs> yeah, well, it, the, it probably didn't say, like, there probably wasn't a, yeah, no, there I think was... I clicked, like, gift or something, so it doesn't tell you, like, anything in it, like a price point. They don't put a receipt in it or whatever, yeah. you know, so. Very cool. So that's, that's crazy. what. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It is crazy. And then it's, here we are. And I just checked before you guys, when I was sitting here waiting, <gasps> I just checked and it was, like, sometime in like the summer and or fall of 2016 so that was like two and a half coming up on three years ago now we finally get to meet face to face (laughs) finally (laughs) to talk about recovery and to talk about um what life's like you know so i guess all that that big build up (laughs) to get to this point where um i invited you on because because we were friends on social media you had sent me an invitation to like y'all's Facebook page, Reach Recovery. And I before I nowadays you gotta be careful and look around before you click on anything these days. And so right. I did I checked out your page and obviously followed it. Um, and I was interested in what you guys are doing. So what is Reach Recovery? Jenny. <laughs> Reach Recovery is a doctor's office that specializes in addiction treatment with a 12-step component and um, really focusing on really focusing on like the entire person mm-hmm. um, and not just looking at the addiction part, but helping with like the psychosocial, mental stability, um, and like. We, we like to treat the whole person mm-hmm. and not just the one thing that addicts think they need help with, which is the drug problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a pretty good summary. Is that a, is that a good summary? Yeah, there we, we go. We, Boom. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we use medication-assisted therapy, and mm-hmm. it's just a, a, one of the many components mm-hmm. that's involved because... The first thing I tell patients is I look at them, I said, you're really confused about this. You see, all this time you thought you had a drug problem. You don't have a drug problem. Well, yeah, doc, I really do. I said, no, no, you're way wrong. You don't have a drug problem. You got a brain problem. Mm -hmm. Your brain's broken. You've got a disease. It's actually called chronic dopamine reward deficiency syndrome, CDRDS. It's actually a moniker that I... uh, 
I coined, coined. myself. I'm going to need you to break that down for me. <clears throat> <laughs> Chronic dopamine reward deficiency syndrome. An addict's brain does not make enough dopamine. They don't feel good. They always hurt. They always ache. We don't like crowds. We're not comfortable in our own skin, right? We go to a party. We don't know where to stand. And our lives were miserable. And we wondered, if are my life always going to be miserable? And I remember distinctly, I was 13 years old, and I, was, I, I had already uh, been smoking weed and smoking cigarettes and had a few drinks, but somebody uh, prescribed me a narcotic for my knees. I had a problem with my knees. And it said, take two every four hours. And I took two, and I looked around and said, holy shit. Is this how all the rescue people feel all the time? If it says take two every four hours, I think four every two hours might be better. And at age 13, I was a narcotics addict. Absolutely no question about it. <clears throat> so people don't make enough dopamine, and they'll do anything they can to increase the dopamine. All addictions are based on the final common pathway of dopamine in the brain, whether it's Internet addiction, sexual addiction, gambling, everything comes down to dopamine. Um, so chronic dopamine reward deficiency syndrome, you can now see that published. I didn't publish it, but others took the name. Um, and I tell the patients, as I said, you got a brain problem. So what you really need more than anything else is to be brainwashed, right? And I mm -hmm. get a laugh, right? Mm -hmm. They go, really? I say, yeah, but not by me. Oh, no. You have to be brainwashed by... Yourself. You, yourself. That's why we go to 12-step meetings. You don't have to take what they say hook, line, and sinker. You don't have to believe in somebody else's God. But if you'll go to the meetings on a regular basis, it will literally physically rewire your brain. It's called neural repatterning, neural plasticity. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's why we emphasize 12-step recovery. All right, now... It's the cheapest recovery in the world. You throw a buck in the basket if you want. There's if you meetings. can't afford it. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, no reason to spend $40,000 yeah. in an inpatient facility when you can go to meetings. Not dissing inpatient rehab. I think in, inpatient rehab is critical and necessary for a lot of people. But real recovery you get by sitting in the groups, sitting in the rooms. That's mm -hmm. where you get it. Um, there's a lot of ways to go about neural repatterning, right? Meditation, prayer, going to the Buddhist temple, daily reading. Get your just for today, read it every day. Get your one day at a time, read it every day. Put on your earbuds and instead of listening to the same crap you listen to all the time, go to NA speakers online. Listen to Billy A. out of Boston. Listen to that guy out of West Virginia as he talks about running up and down the hollers. Listen to the NC Raw podcast. There you go. <laughs> Got to get my cheap plug. Go ahead, man. <laughs> but all of this information that's going into your brain is working toward this neural repatterning. Yeah. And so we put strong emphasis on this. Whenever a patient comes in, my first question out of my mouth, and they know what I'm going to say, what have you done this week for your program of neural repatterning? Mm -hmm. Right. From a biblical perspective, in this area, a lot of people go to church, a lot of people have faith. I say, listen, you go to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, right? You know what it says there? 
says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. <laughs> That's it right there, neural repatterning. So we do a lot of that at, uh, at Reach Recovery. Yeah. Now, how did, this, how did this come together? Where did this idea come from? How, how did Reach Recovery come to life? It's his brainchild. His brainchild? I started working as a peer support for a larger company that he started. Um, I got my peer support, I, my peer support certificate, I think a year and a half into my recovery. I was coming up on two years mm -hmm. and I, uh, as soon as I got my peer support, the hiring manager at this company called me. She was actually one of my very, she was my very first sponsor when I was 19 and I tried to get clean for the first time. Mm -hmm. She was working with this company and found out that... I had just gotten this certification and gave me an interview and I got a job as a peer support sitting with the patients and um, like offering them support, holding hope for them um, because I had been on medicated assisted treatment before I got clean. And so I had, uh, I have experience with like the exact same thing that they're going through. Um, so I started as a peer support for this other company before reach recovery became a thing and before peer support became a thing it had or already same started same it time. had already started but like yeah. so when i came in at entry level um there were people who had been working at this company for three years where i was at the same level they were because of my peer support education mm -hmm. um so i like kind of walked into it with a with a, a foot in because I already knew a lot of the stuff that people were just learning about. Um, I mean, I'm just the peer support and the office manager. Yeah. That's all I do. That's a, that's a key role though, right? I just, yeah, I just, right. I just do she, all the work. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, 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 Jenny often spends more time with the patient than I do. Mm -hmm. Right. And when I first opened, uh, I opened Wataga recovery center in Johnson city, Tennessee, Everything was emphasizing 12-step recovery, in-house meetings, uh, and we didn't have peer support back then, so we created what we called our Intentional Recovery Education Program, and it was based on Wayne Dyer's book, The Power of Intention. And uh, that book has been instrumental in everything that I've done in my recovery in my life. Wayne was, uh, has passed away now, but he was in active recovery for over 25 years, and that book was critical toward founding intentional recovery and our peer support system. But in other clinics and other facilities, often the doctors are not in recovery. Yeah. So, you know, doctors like that are going to get conned. I mean, you go to the doctor's office, what are you doing? You're going to get dope, right? Mm -hmm. And if you hit a doctor who doesn't know anything about recovery, he's going to get snowed right over. So you put a peer support specialist in there. That's where I come in. And that's a built-in... Bullshit detector. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, and I say it straight to their yeah, face. I'm like, yeah. here, I'm an advocate for you. If you're honest with me and tell me what's going on, I will go out to bat for you, and I will like, you know, fight for you, but you got to be honest with me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, on the other side of that, so I'm a built-in bullshit detector. You can't bullshit a bullshitter, and I'm one of the best ones out there. So yeah. just be honest with me, all right? And it always gets a smile from them, and they're always like, okay... There was one patient who was all like, why do you think I'm bullshitting you? <laughs> and two years later, she's like one of our best 
patience. Like okay. she's really good. But like at first it was hard to deal with because she's like, why are you calling me on my bullshit? What are you talking about? Yeah. And she's, but most patients really receive it very well. Yeah. You, um, you talked about kind of various pathways, right? You kind of hit on a couple like key components to that neural rewiring of the brain. Sure. Um, and I'm a huge proponent on, on that sort of like empowering the individual to kind of build their pathway to recovery. Like, what is it that you need in your life that's going to work? Like, you're the one that knows what will or will not work for you. Once you kind of clear the fog through like detox or medication or whatever it is, um, ultimately it's going to be up to you because this is a lifelong commitment. Like, can I commit to going to 12-step meetings for the rest of my life? Can I commit to a daily meditation practice for the rest of my life? Like, what are, what are the components that will work for, work for you as the individual? And so I say that in, that in getting to, like, how, how do you help facilitate that identification process? Because you did talk about um, emphasizing a 12-step model or some, or some sort of fellowship like that like how do you navigate those waters with an individual um you pretty much have to take them where they are yeah you know that everyone's coming in from a different perspective Mm -hmm. many of our patients have never been to a 12-step meeting which to me is shocking crazy yeah they've been on streets of oxone for two years and they come in to finally try to get help and get Mm -hmm. better and they've never been to a 12-step meeting and a lot of them are terrified because the only idea they have of a 12-step meeting is from like the media yeah. right of like everyone's Movies. standing in a group yeah. and you standing up and telling your whole Smoking story the and first drinking time coffee. Yeah. Huh? and like everyone's like i don't want to go there and talk to people and i'm like yeah. you don't have to mm-hmm. go in there and just sit and like listen mm-hmm. that's okay <laughs> um, yeah yeah so there's a lot of people that are just scared because their only idea of a 12-step meeting is something that just is all false yeah um but i guess like what i do um is like I help them identify certain stressors in their life, like certain things that are causing issues, um, especially since the, like being on medicated assisted treatment, relapse happens. Um, so usually whenever like someone reports that it's happened, um, like we kind of go back a few days and it's like, so tell me about, you know, three days before this happened. And we try to come up with identifiers of got in a fight with my girlfriend or I have financial issues. I don't know if I could pay my rent, right? And all this stress or this and this is what built up to, for what to happen. And then um, I help guide them to find you know, their tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they don't have any, I like put out an array. So like, yeah. so here's some breathing exercises that could help you. Here's uh, the daily meditation from the 12-step program you could try. Um, I actually took a stress management class in college last year and I had to build a stress management toolkit Yeah, that has guided meditations, breathing, um, like a list of a hundred suggestions you can do and you can't sit with yourself, mm-hmm. like do a puzzle, go for a walk, all that stuff. Um, and so I encourage them to come up with their own ideas. It's kind of like just guiding them through the waters of trying to find what's going to work best for them and then giving suggestions here and there. Um, I dropped a 12-step program suggestion probably once an appointment mm-hmm. yeah. for each patient. Sure. Um, but I always try to come up with other options. Yeah. 
he really pushes the meetings. Sure. Well, well, it works. Worked for me. Yeah. Right. And that's what my next but question it was. It doesn't work for everybody. Would be like, what? where do you stand? Like, where do you draw the line with self-disclosure? Self and how much of like your story are you incorporating <laughs> into those conversations? I always ask permission first. Mm -hmm. um, like, hey, can I share this with you? This was my experience. Um, just to give them the option of saying, no, I don't want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> I don't give them that option. <laughs> that's, the difference, gonna... that's the difference in training. <laughs> I have been trained appropriately. <laughs> um, and, then, uh, and then I will share a small piece of my story and how I got through it, and this is what helped me. Um, and not all of it is 12-step based. The other piece is that I always say 12-step program um, because I am a member of Narcotics yeah. Anonymous, I stick very closely to the traditions, and that's all about attraction, not promotion. Yeah. Yeah. And that, like, that tradition stands out the most for me in my job because it's a very thin line. Because mm -hmm. um, we have any literature in our uh, office, um, but when I suggest it, I talk about twelve-step <clears throat> programs. Um, or other recovery meetings. I also right. talk about like smart recovery and celebrate recovery and refuge recovery because the 12 step program can be very unappealing yeah. when you look at like God and faith and all of the words that are mentioned in it. Um, so for a lot of people, like they are just completely turned off at the thought of religion. And so like being like, well, why don't you try like a refuge recovery? It's meditation based. Um, and then like give them a website so they can look up the literature and stuff like that. That's, that's exactly, I, I have a, a dozen patients that have tried 12 step meetings and have decided that they wanted a different route. So mm -hmm. I've guided them in a different route. I yeah. said, okay, well, let's start with this and I'll hand them a book. I said, uh, this is uh, Wayne Dyer's power of intention. This is Eckhart Tolle, the power of now. This is the Tao of Pooh. Let's look into the Tao. All right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been able to, uh, to help a lot of folks completely get their lives back without using 12-step recovery. And, of course, I'm using 12-step principles. And, and it, almost all those programs, they're all, they all use the same sort of 12-step principles. Yeah, like yeah. It's all there. All it's the truth. same principles are yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Now, from a, a clinical standpoint, what we're really doing is motivational interviewing and mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Um, we try not to label things, but but functionally, that's what it comes down to. And uh, we use some contingency management. We were able to get people, you know, you get them feeling better and they give them rewards for, uh, for doing things for themselves, mm -hmm. to help themselves. You know. What about, you know, there's a big um, debate about MAT, specifically surrounding some of the 12-step fellowships. I see it online like almost every day. Yeah, it's everywhere. The memes and the arguing and this and that. And so <clears throat> how, I guess my, my question, not be, being someone who's not super educated in the 12-step world, like how, how do you, when working, when you're working with a client, you're talking to somebody and you're, um, presenting these options to them and say they go and have a uncomfortable experience because of the stigma surrounding MAT. So one of the things that I tell my patients, um, well, first, people who share those memes, 
You should talk to your sponsor. Please. Um, <laughs> They're everywhere. You can't. It, you just can't get away from I mean, them, and man. I, and I know that's like a sarcastic no, opinion or whatever, but no, like, it's not. <laughs> talk to your sponsor. Um, she looked dead in the camera too when she said that. <laughs> All right, let, let's call it what it is. Mm -hmm. MAT is an outside issue. You're mm -hmm. going to the doctor. You're receiving medication for a disease process. That's nobody's business. And mm -hmm. I tell the patients, you don't talk about that in a meeting. Yeah. Now, over in Johnson City, there's a guy that always has to get up and talk about, we don't do that damn doctor dope, right? Yeah. And uh, one time I, I called him out. And you're sitting in the room as the doctor. Oh, yeah, and he knew <laughs> I was sitting there. And, and, Thank and, you, Kendall. And so uh, I, I piped right up, and I won't give his name, um, <laughs> but I'm tempted to. And I said, uh, uh, I said, well, uh, I'm Tom, I'm an addict. Hi, Tom. Yeah, I got a question. My doctor prescribed me Viagra, and uh, I've tried it. It doesn't seem to be working right. And I'm wondering if anybody give me some advice on, on about this medicine. You know, and I get laughs and stuff. <clears throat> That's an outside issue. I said, exactly. It's an outside issue. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. You know, we don't talk yeah. about medications in this meeting. Mm -hmm. And you get some pushback. Um, but all, uh, all silliness aside... Right, I don't care how you get clean. I don't either. A drug addict, it never shocks me when a drug addict does drugs. Right, patient comes in, they're all shameful. Go, doc, my sister gave me a Xanax. It's like, yeah, and you took it, right? That doesn't shock me that a drug addict does drugs. What shocks me is when a drug addict doesn't do drugs. Right, that's the miracle. And if you get clean through Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, if you get clean through twelve-step recovery cognitive behavioral therapy, psychiatry. If you get clean and you're not doing drugs, you're a miracle. You're a miracle. And I applaud that. Mm -hmm. So what I say to my patients when I talk about 12-step recovery um, is, I mean, MAT is medicated-assisted treatment. And there are busloads of people in treatment in meetings. Mm -hmm. um, and that's... What I tell them, and that's what I tell people who bring up the issue. I was like, they're not just on Suboxone, they're on medicated assisted treatment, and you don't tell people who are coming from treatment centers not to be in the meetings. Um, and I tell my patients that like they don't have to tell anybody that they are in treatment and that they're getting help from a doctor. Um, I always reference our um, <clears throat> the literature in times of illness. Mm -hmm where it says very clearly, if you are taking medicine prescribed to you by a doctor as prescribed, then you're doing what you're supposed to do. Because doctors went to school and spent thousands of dollars and many years of their life to be able to do that. Um, and I think that like, once a patient puts their trust in a doctor after revealing everything that they know, like, hey, I have a problem with this, I have an addiction, this is my this is my issue, and the doctor decides to prescribe them whatever, that's their treatment plan. Um, and we set up treatment plans for people who go to inpatient treatment, and MAT is outpatient treatment. Um, and what I tell our patients is, like, the doctor's going to make your body feel better, and then you have to put in the work to make your head feel better. Mm -hmm. And that's when we apply these new tools. And what <clears throat> we're doing is we're just basically making our patients stable enough to be able to get new information and apply it without being dope sick and vomiting on themselves. Um, and I really think that has a lot of value. You, you are capable of 
learning more when you're not, when you don't have the, the chills and the sweats. Yeah. Right. So like I tell my patients, you know, if you go into a meeting, you don't have to say anything. You don't even have to introduce yourself. It's no one's business that you're in treatment. The point is, is that you're trying to get help. You're there for recovery. They're there for recovery. And that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They've, um, they've earned their seat. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Was there any point in your career where there was like a shift in the way that you approached it and you began to work with MAT? Oh, I'm a diehard fundamentalist, big book thumper. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a long road to get there. Um, You know, as I mentioned, I was using drugs at a young age. And uh, when I was 19, I I had a religious experience and I was able to stay off of drugs for several years to get into medical school. And in medical school, um, you know, I, I couldn't perform. I was struggling, and um, Jesus drank wine, so I thought I'd drink some wine, right? So I drank some more wine, and then I drank beer, and then I was smoking pot, and then it was right off to the races again. And by the time I got into my internship, I had found the needle. <clears throat> I <clears throat> quit internship because it was getting in the way of my using, and I went out to work. Uh, in the coal fields of Southwest Virginia. Um, I was intervened on, and I went into my first rehab, I guess it was 1989. Um, It took for a while, and I managed to piece together almost eight years. And uh, surprisingly, I quit going to meetings. It's just a shocker there, but my sponsor told me I could quit going to meetings. <laughs> but I was sponsoring myself at the time. Okay. So <laughs> that was, and uh, in, in very, very short order, my disease escalated dramatically. And um, I went home from work. Uh, I was working ER up in Virginia, and I went home from work and shot up my usual dose and woke up uh, intubated in the intensive care unit of the hospital where I had been working at six hours earlier. And that put a bit of a damper on my medical career. That was really (laughs) poor form. Um, So back into rehab, high dollar, expensive, inpatient rehabs. Nothing worked, nothing took. I didn't get it. I was too smart for 12-step recovery, right? You can't be too dumb to get 12-step, but you can be too smart. Why, how does this work? Why does this work? Thank you. It works, right out of it. It works really well. Just do it, you know? Um, and uh, after, after going on tour and, and dealing dope and running all over the country, I finally took off for Mexico in 2001 to use drugs and die. I had lost my medical license, surrendered my credentials, and uh, off I went to Mexico, and I was uh, doing untoward things on the border, and um, it got ugly fast. And after a, a four-day tequila binge, I woke up on the floor of this bed and breakfast, face down in my own puke, with this old fat gay guy kicking me in the ass, going, hey, you, hey, are you done? Are you done? And I thought, man, everywhere you go, <laughs> I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I kind of looked up in a blur and I said, yeah, I guess I'm done. And he goes, well, that's good. The only English speaking AA meeting for 400 miles meets tonight in this bed and breakfast. Are you coming? Shit. And I said, yeah, I guess I'm coming. I didn't get clean that day, but April 19th, 2002, 
the last needle was broke. And I got clean and sober in Mexico going to AA and NA meetings. I learned how Spanish really quick because I yeah. went to a lot of Spanish, Spanish-speaking meetings. Um, never thought I'd practice medicine again. Came back to the States in 2003, worked at my brother's law office in Greenville, South Carolina. And everyone kept saying, man, you should really try to get your license back. I thought, man, they're never going to give me my license back. You know, I'm a two-time loser. This is, this is a dead end. <clears throat> but uh, I was going to the impaired physicians group and going to meetings every night. You know, I went to a meeting every day for over a year when I got clean. Um, but I was a drug addict. You know, I don't know about you. I, I managed to figure out a way to use. <laughs> I managed to figure out a way to use every day, right? And these people tell me they can't get to a meeting. You can't get to one meeting a week. Let me ask you a question. If there were 180 oxys down in uh, Knoxville and we had to be there in three hours, you think you and I could figure out a We'd way make to it. get Absolutely. there? We'd make Absolutely. it. Yeah. <laughs> you can't um, go to one meeting? Anyway. I'd, I'd hotwire a helicopter and be there in about <laughs> oh, 45 <yes>. minutes. <laughs> so anyway, um, I went to Lexington, Virginia, and I started working as a tutor at VMI, and I worked as Igor in the Haunted Monster Museum in Natural Bridge, Virginia. And my wife, Maggie, Mexican lady, came back with me from Mexico with our newborn baby, who's now 16. I got to wear this top hat and these little dark John mm. Lennon glasses and a, a three-piece suit. I am Igor, and I will be your guide. Please do not get separated while you're in the house. I couldn't possibly put you back together if you weren't separated. You still got the role, man. Best job I ever had <laughs> in my life, man. And Maggie ran the scares behind the scene. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, I went through, I had to get retested. I had to go through retraining. And finally, I got my license back in May of 2005 with the condition that I finished the residency that I had dropped out of that was getting away my mm-hmm. using. So I came to Johnson City, Tennessee, East Tennessee State, and I did a family practice residency. And I finished that in 2007. And I worked ER for about three years. And then I decided that, <clears throat> and I had looked at medication-assisted therapy the whole time I was working ER. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to get into that. And I'm going to do it right. Because I'm going to get these people off of Suboxone in six months. You know, and we're not going to prescribe this. And we're not going to do that. And I was very, very strict and very, very rigid. So I opened up a small practice in 2010 called Watauga Recovery Center. And... Uh, Seven years later, there were 11 facilities in four states. We had 40 docs working for us, 100 employees. Um, I was uh, board certified in addiction medicine, board certified in family medicine. I was appointed to the uh, legislative committee of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and I was the I'm now the past president of the Tennessee Society of Addiction Medicine. I helped write the rules and regulations for OBOTS in Tennessee. I helped write the buprenorphine guidelines in Virginia, and I was actively lobbying in Washington as well. And uh, uh, I was able to to sell that company to an outfit that was gonna take full insurance to be able to increase access to care. That company's now called Revita, and they provide services to literally thousands of people in Virginia and Tennessee. Um, uh, and all of that under the licensure and the OBOTs, and I was able to carve out reach recovery to be able to keep this open in Asheville and take care of the small group of patients that I've cared for for now for many, many years. Yeah. 
Let's let's take a step back. That's the story. And let's mm-hmm. talk. I want to know about this path of redemption to regain your medical licensure. What like initially when you're working, you said you're working for your brother at a attorney's office. Mm-hmm. Initially, like it sounded like that wasn't really something that was on your radar as far as pursuing. I had pretty much given up yeah. hope on that. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Um, there's a whole lot of hoops. Mm-hmm. And when I sat down with uh, a, a good friend of mine, Jerry Rosen, <clears throat> I was sitting there in Mexico, sitting up on the hill, smoking a doob, and he said, Doc, what are you doing here? And I thought, well, you know, Jerry, I could probably get my medical license back, but here's what I'd have to do. I'd have to get completely clean <clears throat> and sober, go to meetings, go back to rehab, be reevaluated, apply to the board, be on probation, take the entrance exams again. And he looked at me, he said, so what are you still doing here? And I've never forgotten that. Jerry's passed away since then. But um, same thing happened when I got to Greenville and I I was going to Caduceus. And one of the leaders of addiction medicine physicians was a a Dr. Greg, who used to work at Greenville General Hospital. And he looked at me, he said, Tom, you should try to get your license back. We'll advocate for you. And uh, that's what put me on the road. Yeah. So I knew there were going to be a lot of hoops. And uh, you think it was the work or like the guilt and the shame from um, a little bit of both, maybe? Yeah, I knew. Well, you have to tell your story over and over mm-hmm. and over. Every time you fill out an application for a medical license or for a DEA certificate, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Mm-hmm. Have you ever lost your license for any reason? And you have to tell your whole story over and over and over. Mm-hmm. You get to where you just kind of do a one-page letter that explains everything, and you say, see the letter, you know. But Yeah. yeah. Ha- having been to so many meetings, I'm sure that you participated in speaker meetings where you shared that story over and over, right? Uh, it's different. Different? <clears throat> Talking when, about the guilt in and the shame of, of your past of yeah. people who are supposed to be yeah. your peers, professional peers, yeah. that are judging you compared to same last name person in the same room mm-hmm. listening for the same emotional connection yeah. compared to being judged by your professional peers mm-hmm. of whether or not you're good enough to continue mm-hmm. to do what you want to do. But back to the original point, I got clean and sober through 12-step recovery. My sponsor was a hard ass, and he still is, and I still talk to him just about every day in Mexico. Um, I would sit there, and I'd say, Jim, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm I'm, I'm stuck in Mexico, and, and Maggie's pregnant, and I don't have any way to make money. I was making $10 a day as an auto mechanic in Mexico. We had no electricity, no running water, <coughs> three teenagers to care for in addition to the newborn. And Jim would say, well, you just do the next right thing. And I'd say, the next right thing, what's that? He said, sweep the floor. Okay, I'll sweep the floor, sweep the floor. So, I mean, it's the cleanest floor you've ever seen, right? And then I'd go, Jim, what do I do now? He said, you mop the floor. And then you chop wood and then you carry water. And he gave me that book. And then he gave me that book. And he didn't just give me the 12-step literature. He gave me everything else I needed to reframe and to recreate that neural net that I needed. I didn't have an off switch back then. My off switch was my sponsor in my meetings, right? It takes a while to recreate that off switch. 
but uh, I was diehard 12-step recovery by the book. And then I saw that it was only 11 to 17% successful. And I used to look at people and go, well, you know, it's 100% people successful for people who go to meetings. And then I figured out, you know what? That's not true either, because we have lost dozens and dozens of people out of the Asheville community who are going to meetings and who relapse. And when they relapse, they go back to the same dose they were using before, and they die. Meaning makers make meetings. Mm -hmm. They don't make it. They make meetings. Well, it's a start. It is a start. It is. You know, (laughs) step zero, don't use, right? Go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps on paper. Take the cotton out of your mouth and shove it in your ears. If you do that, that's a good start. But it's just a start. It's not the entire solution. Tell me I'm lying. You sound like you've heard all this before. No. (laughs) When you were growing up, Jenny, Mm -hmm. how how involved, like how aware of what was going on with your father were you? So guilt, shame. Like was (laughs) was all this twelve step stuff like um uh, no part of your I don't think so I was born in 86, mm-hmm. and so for the first eight, nine years of my life, my dad was sober. Um, and so for the longest time, there wasn't an issue, and I didn't know anything about it. Um, he used to have these uh, change jars, and his his AA coins would be near the, the change jars. So like I knew that that was a thing, and I remember going to like Caduceus with him or meetings with him when I was much younger and I just like sit underneath like a table and draw and color and stuff. Um, but I wasn't really aware of, um, the chaos at a young age. Yeah. Um, what about the the actual, like why you were there? No, just tagging along. Yeah. I just wanted to spend time with my dad. Yeah. Um, there is an early memory that I have of him coming home, right? And me sitting in his lap and giving a hug and him having this specific smell, right? And I didn't know what it was until my first time in rehab. I had some friends come visit me and one of them was drunk Mm. (laughs) and I gave him a hug and I was like, why do you smell like my dad? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, and I put it together as I like, oh, that's what that smell was. I always just had it in my head of like, that's, that's what my dad smells like. Um, but so when I was young, it wasn't very apparent. Um, when I became a teenager, it was a little bit different. Um, I was very involved. Um, I asked for $10 to go to the mall and I'd get a $50 bill. And then I'd take that $50 bill and go buy weed. (laughs) Right. And then it got to the point of, um, one of my partners, one of my boyfriends at the time, <clears throat> was all like, why don't you just get him to buy it for you? Um, and so I think my boyfriend and my dad started smoking weed together. Um, and that kind of carried into a couple of years of not necessarily using together, 
um, but with the same people and at the same time coming from like the same stash. Um, and so like, I don't know, my story is a little bit different cause it's coming from like age 12 to, you know, I'll be 33 next year. No, next month. Fuck. I'm old. Um, <laughs> um, and the progression was a lot different. Um, as far as what happened in his life was completely different from mine. Um, so like there were parallels because we were in the same house and I was like, he was my father and I grew up with him, but I had many different experiences. Um, so like the night that he OD'd and woke up in the hospital the next day, um, I remember him coming home from work that night and we were going to go feed the cats in the cat house. And he said he was going to leave and he'd be right back. And I fell asleep on the couch waiting for him to come back. And when I was woken up the next day, that's when I was told he was in the hospital. Um, so, but even then, I was just told he had a heart attack. No one told me the truth. Um, so, like, I knew he was injured and he was hurt. I didn't know it was because of active addiction. And that didn't become apparent until I started using um, and when I started using drugs to deal with like my traumas and other things that I had experienced in my life at that time, I mean, yeah, I was a teenager and over emotional or whatever. <laughs> um, but there were some things that had happened that, um, you know, many women experience and no women should. Um, but I mean, like one out of four women are sexually assaulted. Right. So I experienced that at a really young age. And that's one of the things that pushed me towards using um, I also experienced death at a really young age, so 13, and the guy I was, like, totally in love with OD'd and died in my house. Um, and that was just kind of like me off to the races trying to avoid processing all of the loss that I had gone through. Um, and then by the time I was 14, a few weeks before my 15th birthday, I was taken advantage of, and this was right before... Dad left to go to Mexico, and I got pregnant from that time. Um, and so I think I was like three or four months pregnant when he left and went to Mexico. And that whole deal happened, right? So this is where, like, the story really splits off. Like, he's in Mexico. I'm going through something completely different. I'm living in a meth house with <clears throat> his ex-girlfriend, my sister, my boyfriend, and the guy who raped me, um, taking care of a three-year-old while everyone else was doing meth. 15 at the time, pregnant, taking care of a three-year-old, complete and total chaos. Um, and I think I was like seven months pregnant when I decided to go home and live with my mom. Um, and I had my son. He's 17 now. Um, and I continued to like smoke weed and stuff. When I was pregnant, I was completely clean. That was the first time I'd ever gotten clean. Um, and then after I had my son, I was introduced to opiates. Someone was all like, hey, you have all this weed and you're selling this weed. You've got plenty of money. Buy these pills. Um, and that's when I was given my answer. I was yeah. all like, oh, I don't have to think about this and I don't have to feel this. Pot is fun. This is the answer. Um, and that went really quickly. Um, I hit the bottom of my barrel very fast at that point by the time I was 18, I was in an abusive relationship and I found a man hurting my son 
So I gave custody of my son to my mom. But my addiction was so strong, I was terrified that if I left him, that I wouldn't be able to get high anymore. So I stayed in a very sick, abusive relationship throughout my active addiction for another two, three years. And then I got clean for the first time when I was 19. Um, and by this time, he's in Johnson City doing his residency. Um, I was on probation for filling out fake prescriptions and getting thousands and thousands of fake prescriptions filled. <laughs> they caught me once. Um, so I was on probation for being a convicted felon and went to rehab because I asked my PO to help me. And my PO and my dad talked about once I get out of treatment. And that's when I moved down to Johnson City and I got about nine months clean and fell in love. <laughs> right? Get you every time. Yeah. <laughs> nine months clean and fell in love and I got pregnant. Um, and four months into it, I had a miscarriage and I was like, oh, there is no God. Fuck the world. And I went back out and I went back out for another seven years. Um, and we both lived in the same city at the time and he helped me a lot and I got my son back and I went to college and I was a functional addict for a long time. I didn't go back to IV drug use. Was he aware of what was going on? Um, of which part? <laughs> that you were getting your life back but still using? Um, I was, it, it's not a justification. I was like smoking weed mm -hmm. and drinking and sometimes taking hallucinogens. I wasn't yeah. um, taking opiates all the time. So I didn't go back to what was fucking killing me. Yeah. Um, and I think he was aware that I was smoking weed, yeah. um, but nothing else. Um, and then I had surgery. And when I had surgery, I was all like, look, I'm an opiate addict. You just gave me a bunch of Dilaudid. Now give me Suboxone. Yeah. And it was total manipulation. Um, I could have just stopped taking the medicine and then I wouldn't have yeah. needed to be on yeah. anything. Um, and uh, I was able to get into a clinic to get on the medication and um, after I was on medicine for about two or three years, some shit went down in South Carolina, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and I got clean for this time, and that was six years ago. Okay, six years ago in August. Um, she went to jail. That's my life in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. And that, daddy wouldn't bail her out. <laughs> he did bail me out, and I went to treatment for 90 days. All right. Um, and you kind of hit on something that's like been, that I've been very conscious of and aware of in con this MAT conversation, and is that, and that is the potential for manipulation to pursue Suboxone and Methadone. And I think that like having somebody who, number one, has, experienced the suffering of addiction and is a person in long-term recovery and then a bullshit detector as a buffer. Like, I think that what you guys are doing with reach recovery, that's one of like the advantage advantages of what you guys are doing because like, I know every trick they're trying to pull. Yeah. I can tell when they're trying to sell it. I can tell when mm -hmm. they're um, like, they're asking for more cause they don't really like, I, it's like, I'm not stupid. I know you're taking one and trying to sell two. <laughs> and, and um it's one of the the skills that i use like when new patients come in i'm all like i know what it's like to be a middleman i know what it's like for people saying hey if you give me a ride i'll give you this 
someone calls you, give them my phone number. Yeah. And you know what that's done is we, we've selected out a group of patients that really want to get better. And those who yeah. were never serious or who were full of shit, never stay. they don't come back. They don't come back. Or they come back, and when they come back, they're ready to get serious because yeah. they know Because they know you guys are serious. That's how we're going to be. Yeah. But, you know, back to the original question about MAT and 12-step recovery, and the reality is, all right, that... You know, methadone was a great solution in 1972. It will always have a place for those who are already on it and doing well with it, and it will have a place in inner cities where people can walk and get it. But it is drastically and quickly being supplanted by the buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is much, much safer. It has a ceiling effect. You can't overdose on it. You can take 10 Suboxone at the same time. It's the same as doing two. You don't get higher. It doesn't last longer. It actually is protective. It binds so tightly to the mu opioid receptor that if you have buprenorphine in your system and you shoot heroin, you probably are not gonna die from it because the heroin will not displace that from the receptor. So there's tremendous advantage to the buprenorphine molecule. If you were to take it and give it away, nationwide free at every drugstore, the mortality from opiate addiction would drop by 70%. Now, I don't advocate for that, right? Because I think that addiction is a biopsychosocial spiritual disease that requires neural repatterning and reprogramming of the brain. However, from a public health perspective, medication-assisted therapy with buprenorphine is the solution, um, part of the solution, right? The fact that there are restrictions by the federal government on the number of patients that a physician can see there's plenty of doctors out there that are licensed to prescribe buprenorphine, but only about 30% of them actually do. The other 70% are scared shitless by the DEA and the Department of Justice. And why is that? Why are there restrictions on it? Uh, this is a really good question. Why are there restrictions on it? Uh, at this juncture, with uh, my present position with uh, Watauga Recovery Center and Reach Recovery, uh, I don't want to go too not. deep yeah. into it. Is it, uh, but is it fear of... Is, they're is trying it, to kill off a generation of drug addicts, and they're uh -huh. doing it. They're restricting access to addicts who need the help. Um, it's not about trying to keep it off the street. It's not about trying to fight the opioid epidemic because it's the solution to the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. They're restricting that and therefore encouraging an entire generation of people to die. I didn't say that. Didn't oh, that. no, I did. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting that people who get stabilized in medication-assisted therapy, they get their jobs back. They pay their taxes. They take care of their families. They pay off their fines. They get their driver's licenses back. They become active, productive members of society. They no longer commit those crimes. And if they don't commit crimes, then we can't have them on probation and parole and have them incarcerated in for-profit prisons. So I wonder why they would not wanna have an entire generation of people successfully be treated with buprenorphine. It's a question worth asking. It is a question worth asking. <laughs> so I asked this. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know outside of um, fear of what I would th say because of like the stigma surrounding this opioid epidemic, the stigma of potential abuse even though well, it's the, clearly here here's the reality you know all that conspiracy theory aside 
there is a significant number of people who think that buprenorphine is simply replacing one drug with another, mm -hmm. all right? They don't understand the disease of addiction. Addiction is not a disease, it's a sin, right? And sinners have to go to hell. But before they go to hell, they have to go to jail, right? And so if you have that as a philosophy, if you're thinking that, then all this nonsense that all of these, you know, World Health Organization and National Institutes of Health and the Substance Abuse and Health Administration and every major entity that deals with addiction in the country and the world that says that addiction is a disease process of the brain, all of those people are idiots because these people need to go to jail. Yeah. Because of Jesus. Because oh, no, don't you, don't you do that. Sorry, I'm I sorry. Mean, don't you do that. <laughs> The proof is in the data. It's quite And clearly. I don't understand how it's it's right there. Um, so what are the restrictions? Like what 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 are you limited on as far as what you can and can't do? Well, I mean, it's shocking. Ten years ago, uh, if you signed up to get permission to prescribe this medicine, you could only see 30 patients uh, at a time in the first year. In the second year, that number went up to 100. Right now, in this country... They don't um, have enough doctors to cover the 70-something thousand people who are dying well, here. Exactly. Well, we petitioned Health and Human Services back in 2015 to change the number, mm -hmm. and we actually petitioned for it to go to 500. Because we filed a formal, position, uh, uh, a formal uh, petition, they were required to respond, and part of that response was the ability to go to 275 for mm -hmm. board-certified physicians and for other circumstances. Even at 275, there aren't enough providers. Only 30% of active opiate addicts in this country have access to medication-assisted therapy. Yeah. It's an outrage. Yeah. If this was HIV and there you had, you had 10,000 people lined up to get medication to save their lives and you had doctors willing to treat them and you had the government that says, nope, nope, you can only take care of 275 AIDS patients at a time. Sorry, the rest of them are just going to have to tough it out. Do you, how do you think that would go over in It this would country? not go over well at all. They'd have social justice warriors you think? tear down the White House. It's time. Yeah. But the stigma is just so great on addiction and like mental health. Like There's yeah. a huge stigma against mm -hmm. addicts because it is seen as a moral failing um, instead of like something that needs to be treated as a medical issue. I do agree with you. However, I would like to ask Dr. Tom, have you seen a shift in that stigma? Because that's, in. I mean, I've done 70 podcasts. I am super active in outside in the recovery world on campus and all over. And that's like the number one, I almost want to say buzzword that everybody leans towards is this stigma. stigma and so like have you seen a shift in that there, there has been a dramatic shift in mm -hmm. the past eight years it started with a march on washington by facingaddiction.org where uh joe walsh and uh <clears throat> steven tyler and others a litany of uh, hollywood and big names got up on the stage and said i am also an addict i'm a person in long-term recovery mm -hmm. And that really started the wave. If you've never looked at facing addiction, you should look yeah. at it. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and sure, now everyone's kind of catching on. Now, you know, it's funny that a lot of these state agencies were adamantly opposed to medication-assisted therapy yeah. because Medicaid was going to have to pay for the medicine. 
And when the federal government came up with a billion dollars last year or two years ago, we turned it down. Magically, oh no, magically, all the states were going, we've always believed in medication assisted therapy. We want our 350 million. Uh, And the money started pouring into the states. Now, Mm -hmm. I say that tongue in cheek, it's entirely true. I say it tongue in cheek. I don't care how we increase access to care, right? The federal government gives money to the states, the states give money to the mental health facilities who don't have any idea what they're doing, but they're learning. The money goes into the methadone industry so that they can convert patients into the buprenorphine model, right? All of the major methadone providers saw the writing on the wall 10 years ago, said, okay, we need to be able to step up and do this medication-assisted therapy with buprenorphine. Dramatic shift. So it almost sounds like much of this, had they reacted 10 years ago, could have been prevented. We we were on the housetops 10 years ago pulling our hair out and screaming. So what about this Medicaid expansion in the state of North Carolina and like the discussions on that? Is that something that is affecting people receiving medication-assisted treatment? Well, let's just look at, at one of the model programs in the country. Um, uh, a gentleman named Hughes Melton... Uh, up in the state of Virginia, pioneered a program called the Virginia Arts Program. This opened up uh, addiction treatment for Medicaid providers. It's a phenomenal program. It requires, you know, there's some restrictions and requirements on it um, that I didn't agree with, but, you know, it's it, good people sure. can disagree. Uh, but as a result of that program, they have completely opened up access to care for all Medicaid participants. The problem right now is there's waiting lists at all of the art certified facilities. So like if you go to the, the Revita clinic in, in Withville or Abingdon, they've got a, a two month waiting list. They don't have enough physicians that are qualified to be able to take care of those patients. And you can't, you can't hire physicians. Recruiting physicians was always the hardest part of the job. And is that because of the buy-in on MAT? No, it's because of the stigma and the fear the fear of the DEA and the fear of the Department of Justice cracking down somehow and ruining their lives and ruining their careers. So trying to get physicians to be able to take that risk. And they're actively out there trying to get doctors to get their X numbers and doctors just don't want to do it. There has to be a shift in that regard as well. Yeah. But this uh, Virginia Arts Program has, has completely opened up access to care to literally tens of thousands of patients. Hopefully, we'll see the same thing in North Carolina. And also, I think like a shift in just educating young people who are pursuing medical licensure, like your daughter, who's talked about going to school and well, uh, like the, things like that. People who are already on board, people who have been through the the system, and people who understand the research behind MAT and understand like the significance of this model in assisting individuals to find recovery. Well, the the leader in that field is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. If you go to asam.org, that for the last 50 years, they have been the leaders in addiction medicine. In the last 10 years, they've been actively pushing for residencies and fellowships in addiction medicine, board certification in addiction medicine, and bringing this awareness you're talking about to the public. They've done amazing work. Yeah. So can we spend some time talking about like maybe the science behind the ibuprofen model and like what 
Well, you gotta know how to say the word. No, you keep saying it. Bupropenorphine. Bupropenorphine. It's actually bupropenorphine. 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 If I had a whiteboard, yes, I can't think without a whiteboard. Yes, you can. All right, I can use my hands. You can use your hands. Face the camera. All right. In your brain, you've got opiate receptors, right? They're the mu opioid receptors. Those opiate receptors have a compound that fits perfectly in them. It's called endogenous morphine. Endogenous means from within. Morphine, you know what that means. Endogenous morphine. Yes, we do. (laughs) That would be endorphin. Endorphin, endogenous morphine. Fits perfectly in that receptor. It sends a signal to your body and your brain that you feel okay. Now, normal people walking around outside out there, earth people, you know, they've got about 50% of these receptors filled at any one time, and they just feel normal. Addicts don't ever feel normal. They hurt, they ache, they don't like crowds, they're not comfortable in their own skin. Until they take that first opiate, and they're ready to go dancing, right? Normal person, they take an oxy, they go home and go to bed. to sleep. We take an oxy, we go home and clean the garage, right? I feel normal. Well, buprenorphine is a partial agonist. That means it binds sideways in that receptor. It sends a signal to your body and your brain that you feel okay, right? You don't tweak, you don't get pill sick, you don't chill. At the same time, you don't get high. It's not a great buzz, all right? 95% of addicts will tell you, I don't take Suboxone to get high. I take Suboxone to feel normal. Normal. Right, to and not be dope sick. And every addict that I, I propose that to says that word. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, let's give the caveat to that. If you're a 14 year old kid and you've never taken a narcotic and somebody gives you suboxone, you're going to get you high. Get high. Yeah. And it can become your primary drug of abuse. And is that because those receptors have never been activated before? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And and there are people who their only drug of abuse is buprenorphine. And they really like the monoproduct, meaning the subutex, which is buprenorphine by itself, because it can be injected. And it's a primary drug of abuse in Appalachia. We have been the strongest advocates for getting subutex off the market for the last 10 years, right? And we were able to get legislation passed both in Tennessee and in Virginia to limit the amount of the monoproduct that's given because it goes into people's arms. And if you're a doctor and you're hearing this, stop writing it. It's going into people's arms. They get it for a buck and a half at the pharmacy. They drive to Harlan, Kentucky and sell it for 60. Mm. And these are people who are either knowingly or unwittingly contributing to the problem. So there is a problem, 2% of the patients who use buprenorphine abuse it, all right? So 98% of the people who use it, it does not get them high. It doesn't impair your driving. It doesn't impair your cognition. We have buprenorphine patients who work in, uh, in the mines, who work in factories. It's completely acceptable. You, you can't get a DUI for driving on buprenorphine. You're not supposed to. It does happen sometimes. If you've been taking it for a regular period of time, it doesn't cause sedation, it doesn't cause impairment. It has a ceiling effect, right? So you go, oh boy, let's have a buprenorphine party and we'll all snort 10 of them, (laughs) right? Well, guess what? Anything more than two, you're pissing it down the toilet, Mm -hmm. right? 
So it doesn't help to take more. It has a sealing effect. And it, like I mentioned before, it has the protective effect that once it binds in that receptor, it binds so tight that if you do an oxy or you do a Lortab, or even if you shoot heroin, you don't get a buzz. And that causes what's called extinction, extinction of the behavior in a psychological term. And so people quit doing it, you know, and they'll come in and maybe their third visit, doc, I snorted an oxy. I looked at him, I say, yeah, well, how'd that go for you? I'm not going to fire him. You know, it's like I'm shocked again. They snorted an oxy. Somebody called the preacher. We need to do an exorcism, right? A drug addict did <laughs> a drug. I always, no. ask, I always ask, how did that make you feel? They're like, I don't feel anything. I feel mm -hmm. stupid. It's like, yeah, you threw away 60 bucks, didn't you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were like, yeah. yeah. I was like, so what can we do next time? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, that's the science behind it. And, it. and not only that, it has a 30-hour half-life. That means that if you take a dose in the morning and your blood level goes up to a 10, in 30 hours, it'll be at a 5. That's basically what a half-life means. So if you take it on a regular basis, what you get is a nice, steady blood level. And if you stop taking it, you don't get pill sick tomorrow. You don't even get real pill sick the day after tomorrow. It takes that long for it to wash out of your system. Where you get dope sick off mm -hmm. of heroin within like four hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which has a half-life of four hours. Exactly. And so you're able, once you get someone stabilized. It's manageable. Well, once you get them stabilized, it's entirely possible to cut the dose down in small increments. I've gotten hundreds of people successfully and completely off of Suboxone and especially off of benzodiazepines. You know, benzodiazepines are the real nightmare. That's killing way more people. Suboxone, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't think there's a single case study reported case of somebody dying from just buprenorphine alone, except small children, all right? There's cases in Finland and there's cases in France where people were injecting high doses of buprenorphine with IV Xanax and died. Yeah, well, if you're going to shoot up a bunch of Xanax and bup, yeah. you're probably going to die. But from therapeutic dosing, show me the bodies. Show me the studies. Show me the case studies. It ain't there. People don't die from buprenorphine. Because now, people can take methadone and then take an oxy and still get high. Yeah. And then they take a Xanax and then they do OD. And methadone and Suboxone are so closely related that everyone thinks it's the same thing. And like, like you said, once you take a Suboxone, you cannot get high. Whereas with methadone, you dose in the morning, six hours later, you take your Oxy, and then you go to bed with alcohol and Xanax, and you die. And you're dead. <laughs> yeah. So methadone really is a dying drug. Yeah. yeah. But what about those, the individual? I mean, it's obviously going to have to stick around because of all the individuals who have been taking it for yes. so long. There, like I said, there is a place for methadone, mm -hmm. right? And I, I, I'm not saying that we should... But this current, again, ep epidemic that they call it, like this current situation that we find ourselves in, um, this is the overall most practical approach to it. Yeah, I, it, it certainly is the most practical approach. Um, there are certain people that can't tolerate buprenorphine. There are certain people that you can't trust with buprenorphine. You know, that they're, they're shooting their buprenorphine. Um, I knew people who would get it and then go and sell it and then buy heroin. Exactly. And, or trade it for heroin. Which is why we drug test our patients every okay. week. <laughs> and so that was what I was getting up to is like, what's the process, right? Somebody oh. contacts Reach Recovery or like, what is the, like, run, run me through it. Like, 
Um, so when someone calls, I set them up an appointment for uh, a Tuesday because that's the day we see patients. Mm -hmm. And they come in and they fill out their paperwork and we get them all checked in. And then um, they sit down with me. And I go through all of our rules and expectations of like, make your appointment, don't be an asshole to the pharmacist, um, keep your medicine locked up. If you're still running on the streets and you're and people are calling you for being a middleman, give them our phone number because you're in treatment now and you can't help them, but we can kind of thing. Um, and then I go through drug, dr their drug use history and get all the pertinent information for the doctor who asks all the same questions anyways, I think. I'm not sure. I'm never in there when they do the, doc the medical part. Um, and I just, I really work at making them feel welcome and understanding the rules and having them understand my role. I tell them I'm a built-in bullshit detector. Um, and I tell them that I'm their advocate and that I tell them that, you know, I'm here to hold hope for you because I used to be in your seat. Um, and then they go in and they see the doctor for 10, 15 minutes. Um, and then we give them drug screens. And um, first screen's almost always dirty. <laughs> and then they're given uh, six weeks to stabilize. Within that first six weeks, um, being a recovering addict and working with addicts for a large part of my life, I understand that you know using drugs is normal for a drug addict which is why they're given six weeks to stabilize. And what is that? What do you mean by that, um, by stabilize? If they give us a dirty drug screen within that six weeks, it doesn't count against them immediately. Don't use the word dirty anymore. I'm sorry. A positive drug screen. <laughs> if it's a positive drug screen, uh, they're not immediately... Removed from the program. Exactly. They mm -hmm. get that six weeks. And then after six weeks, if they give six us... Six weeks is a fair amount of time to... Mm -hmm. Double yeah. that's, actually, that's six appointments. Actually, government tips 42 and other okay. government agencies say three to six months. Okay. So, so we're six weeks is we're, in there. we're pushing them. Yeah. And I always tell them, I was like, you have six weeks that does not give you six weeks to go get high until you get your stuff yeah, together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> because if they get four clean screens, they can go up to biweekly gotcha. and then come every other week. Um, so this, how much of that conversation, right? When you're t prepping them for it and you're talking about the, the six weeks mm -hmm. and, um, kind of screening them. How much of the conversation is about all the other things that we previously talked about tonight about sustaining their recovery? Like how much of the recovery conversation is incorporated into that? Um, so I've got an entry pamphlet, uh -huh. right? And it talks about making your appointment. And then I go into my spiel about doctor takes care of the body. We have to take care of the mind. One of the things we're going to do while we're here is changing old behaviors. And this is a suggestion. Here's a meeting list. Um, and so I give them 12-step meeting schedules, um, and I go through the process of doctors take care of, taking care of the body. We have to take care of the mind. Here are some ways to do that. But on their first appointment, half of them are dope sick. Yeah. They don't they don't feel well, or they're are, they're already high from their morning dose of whatever they took off the street. So I introduce it, and I'm all like, this is a suggestion. It's not a requirement. I just want you to be aware that this is the direction we're going to go when you stabilize in your in your treatment. Um, and then I kind of just go through the rest of the rules. Yeah. I don't really push it hard on the first appointment because like most of them just want to feel better in that moment. But in fo a follow-up appointment. Yeah, their next more... appointment, mm -hmm. it, I that's when I start really going into it. And I'm all like, okay, so you know, what was the best part of your week? Um, lots of open-ended questions of asking how things are going and like, what have you noticed change? And um, 
then sometimes I'll sneak in there. So have you tried any new tools for your recovery this week? Um, and then they're like, no, I got in a fight with my girlfriend, blah, 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 blah. And I just called my drug dealer. And I'm like, you know, you could pick up the phone and call another person in recovery. They're like, you know, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Things they don't normally think of. And, you know, along the, the same lines on the intake, you know, you asked earlier about what about diversion. A study just came out that shows the vast majority of diverted buprenorphine is used for exactly what it's designed for which is to prevent people from being pill sick and to treat the disease of addiction. So the amount of diverted bup for abuse is shockingly small. 80% of our patients, 90 maybe, that come into our clinic are already on buprenorphine. They're okay. just on street buprenorphine. They're on street bup. They've, they've been on oxy. Somebody gave them a bup because they were pill sick, and they said, wait a minute. This, they, so they like almost like... And, and then they go, wait a minute, I'm spending 50 bucks a day to buy street bup. Uh, let's do the math here. You know, maybe I should just go to a facility and yeah. actually get treatment. Have that, um, that it, first taste of like relief Let me give you an interesting, interesting story. It's a little bit of a side, but uh, back in 2013... Uh, I had several patients come in all the way in from middle West Virginia, uh, you know, Welch and Bradshaw. And I was a little bit suspicious of it. And so I finally, you know, once I told my story and I confronted him and I got down to the bottom, he said, well, you know, in West Virginia, there's nobody that prescribes buprenorphine. We don't have any treatment at all. So the guy that used to deal the oxys, what he does is he sends out about 10 guys a week to go out and to lie to the buprenorphine doctors down in Virginia and Tennessee, and they go down, you know, they're writing them three a day, and they bring them back up here, and then he sells them to the oxy addicts. He was running a de facto drug treatment oh, center shit. to make money and oh. paying the guys to go down there and pick up the bup, paying them cash and paying their gas and their food. Because the healthcare providers can't open up their own. That, so the drug, the, the drug dealer, well, if everyone's going to be on buprenorphine, I might as well be the guy yeah. making the money off of Holy it. Cow. That's a true story. That's crazy. Yeah. That's absolutely crazy. That was just five <laughs> years ago. Yeah. And that's what I, I kind of hinted at, like how much progress has been made in a short period of time regarding MAT, right? Like just five or six years ago um, in this immediate local area um, it was something that was very kind of shunned upon and not even really discussed and now um, I'm taking a class this semester where our entire college textbook is specifically the entire book is on MAT and on um, all of the different options and the way that it works on the brain and that sort of thing. Well, awesome. shout out, shout out to the CARA Act. Shout yeah. out to Patrick Kennedy. Shout out to those who pushed the legislation legislation through, and the federal government finally got it. Mm -hmm. um, now they just need to get that information down to the Department of Justice. Yeah, yeah. And what about like in like rural areas, like ours specifically? Like if somebody. Um, there's an excellent clinic in Waynesville. Yeah, but like that's we're like a half an hour away. So like you're in early recovery, you don't have transportation, you lost your license, sold your car, whatever's going on. Like it's difficult for people to get out to Waynesville, and then they have a pretty strict um, program, from what I understand. So it's like you gotta, you gotta, um, 
do the daily. You got to go out there daily for I can't remember how many weeks consecutively mm-hmm. and do well with it before you're, before allow, you're allowed started. to take home. Before you're allowed to take home, yeah. And, and so like um, a lot actually, of people fail out because we, they can't just keep up with that type of program and show up there at se- seven o'clock in the morning. We get a lot of patients who have failed out of that program. Uh-huh. Um, because we're not a daily clinic of show up every morning to get your dose at our office, um, it's kind of like we're handing you a prescription so you can get your life back. Yeah. You wake up and take your medicine and put your child on the bus and have breakfast with your wife before you go to work mm-hmm. instead of spending all that time driving out to the clinic to get your dose to come back. Um, and there's a lot of patients that are really surprised. They're like, wow, this is a completely different program that I've never well, seen I'm surprised before. because I've known everybody that I've known in the five years that I've lived here has gone to that specific one out in Haywood County and mm-hmm. experienced so, some have experienced great success and they go out there for the five or six weeks that they have to on the daily. They earn their take homes and they're live. They have their life back, but there's some people, and that, some can't people that can't do, do that, that daily. Correct. Um, Correct. And so like we've definitely taken in a lot of patients who are like, so this place was suggested to us by them. Okay. Um, so I'm, what's the difference? Why, why, why are they so strict? Why are other agencies have so many other restrictions? It's the same fear of, well, I also think that it's a matter of, uh, licensing. Like you have okay. to have a specific kind of insurance to have medications on site. Mm-hmm. which is not something we do. Uh, we don't have any medications on site. We have, like, we, like there's a prescription that you take to the pharmacy mm-hmm. instead of us taking, handling medicine and giving it to you. Are there specific pharmacies that your <clears throat> patients have to go to to receive it? Every pharmacy ho- carries people. Because I also knew, I knew patients back home in Florida that um, the pharmacies were no longer stocking the medication. Because oh, we, we fought that battle back in 2015. 14, 2015, yeah. especially in Kentucky, where <clears throat> pharmacists uh, were openly and blatantly discriminating against people with the disease of addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one pharmacy that says, yeah, we'll take care of those patients, but they have to show up at 6 o'clock and they come to the back door. What does that mean? <laughs> Meaning that they wouldn't allow them to come into Over the, the counter, pharmacy. They didn't want the, yeah. They would hand them their prescriptions oh out the God. back door. But you could go get your 90 Oxy 80s without oh, any a problem. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. But try to get some help, and all of a sudden it's an issue. Wow. There's only a few pharmacies that actually have any issues, and it's a lot worse in Tennessee. There's a lot of pharmacists that try to dictate treatment plans. Mm-hmm. Um, and in North Carolina, like the pharmacists have been amazing. Um, I think Walmart nationwide decided to fight the opiate epidemic by not filling buprenorphine prescriptions. Yeah. Go figure that. What's that all about? But they would fill your oxys and lower taps, but Walmart stopped filling buprenorphine prescriptions altogether nationwide. And I think that's the only pharmacy that's ever, we've ever had an issue with. Yeah. Because they don't want those kind of people in, in their, their store. store. Well, those kind of people are in their store yeah, stealing shit off the shelf exactly. to go buy heroin or whatever. I said that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, when we first started opening, when we opened in uh, out in rural Virginia, and there was a lot of nut in my backyard, right? Well, we don't want those kind of people coming into our town. And the answer was, those there. people are already in your they town. Are, they are your people. Matter of fact, they're mm. coming to Johnson City to see me. Yeah. That's why we need to put a clinic in your town. It's your, it's your brothers and sisters. It's your family. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing. So people are waking up. It's just yeah. been a, a long, hard battle. And, I, you know, I really believe that um, 
when I take a step back and I look at like the entire situation objectively is that like it takes just just this human experience that we're all like figuring out as we live and grow is it takes us culturally be just being human beings it's it takes us a long time to learn to figure things out collectively together to learn how to work together it takes us a very very long time Mm -hmm. right um we're still dealing with the effects of slavery and segregation and things like that 200 years later right we still haven't figured that part of this human experience out so like i think that what we've seen in those 10 or 15 years 10 years has been pretty dramatic in comparison to so many other like social issues. Well, you, I really you, you lose so. 140,000 people. You have to figure that the war on drugs is a total failure. Mm-hmm. We need to take Harry Anslinger and put him back in the grave yeah. and leave him there. Uh-huh. If this you haven't years? read Chasing the Scream with Johan Hari. Yes, I have. Well, I'm sure you have. I have. And we're still in the middle of that that philosophy and mm-hmm. that thinking that somehow we're going to have a war on a substance. This is a war on people. Yeah. This is an active war on people with a disease. Yeah. That was a great book. He, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast about a month or two ago, and it was just like three hours of him just like I'd love to meet him sometime. I haven't had a chance. Yeah. Um, what was that? Uh, <laughs> so... Yeah, I do. I just think it takes time. I think that it takes time to learn, and we've makes we've made some significant changes. You know, the one thing that it's so weird because like so many people, like, and I don't know if it's just because we, we, meaning us in this room and everyone that sits in that chair that you're sitting in, or we all live in this recovery world, and like, I'm my life is around people in recovery, and that's just like that's what I what I need to do to stay sober, obviously. But sure. Um, Everybody says that, right? Everybody says we can't arrest our way out of it. We can't arrest our way out of it. We all know it, but why can't we? What's stopping us from electing individuals who will follow through with legislature that is consistent with our collective understanding? I think there's a difference between belief. and understanding experience. Uh And there's a lot of people who have beliefs that aren't really based on um, any kind of experience or fact. Um, They're beliefs based on hearsay. And and those are the people that are hard to corral in, Mm -hmm. where the people who do have understanding from experience, um, like there's more and more of us, (laughs) Um, but then there's a bunch of us that are dying. Yeah. Um, so even though there is the understanding and experience, there's the, those people with the understanding and experience don't have any power. We don't have any power to yet. Yet. But there's, um, we're like marginalized. Like there's, we don't have the power, the strength to be able to make the moves that you're talking about. And I think a lot of it is based on the belief of it being a moral failing or there's something wrong with us circling back to stigma. Exactly. And like, and that's, what's holding us back as far as that goes is the belief is more spread than the understanding of experience. But as more and more politicians, children's die. Yeah. Yeah. And, And people, young people, 
because that's another thing is that like I found recovery at 32 years old, right? But I meet so many people, especially because of this opioid situation. I meet so many people who find recovery at 20, 20, mm-hmm. 21 years old. There's like a, an entire, there's an entire generation of young people finding recovery. That's why they're opening up recovery high schools there's and things like that. There's only half of them though, because the other half are dead. Didn't make it, yeah. yeah. No, but those people yeah. are going to grow up and have this long-term sustained recovery and become our leaders, right? Exactly. They're going to be, hopefully, right? And then also like people like you and me and people that I've talked to, like we can, we can run for local political offices and things like that. Like you can do. I'm a convicted felon. So what? You can. I think that you can. (laughs) I think that you can. And, but there's great fear if you stand up and take a position on this, that, you know, that they're going to come and try to knock you down. Yeah. And you have to ask, why? I've always been one to take a non-traditional route. So when I, when people ch- want to come and try to knock me down, I just throw up a big fuck you. And I'm, I like chat. I like to, I I I uh I welcome the challenge. You know what I mean? I totally do. In a perfect world, right? If I could hand Doctor Tom a magic wand, and he can solve this problem with his magic wand, what do we need to happen? What do we need to? What do you? envision in order to really genuinely give people give the people who deserve it their lives back like what are the missing pieces to the puzzle what are we not talking about what are we not addressing you know i i don't know that we're missing any of the pieces of the puzzle i just don't think we're moving fast enough this is an opiate epidemic you know, this isn't like leprosy, which kills you over 40 years. This kills you the moment you put the fentanyl in your arm. And so absolutely, the government, uh, the American Society of Addiction Medicine are pushing for educating doctors, educating nurses, educating the society. Um, there are naloxone rescue kits that are now, I mean, we had to fight in 2013 to get naloxone distributed to our patients. I was one of the first doctors to sign nationwide, or not nationwide, but statewide, to allow pharmacists to distribute naloxone, and then nobody would. And now it's everywhere. So people are pushing, actively saying, we've got to do something to stop. And that's what I mean when there's been significant change in a short period of time. I mean, that's one thing that I want everyone who's listening to know, is that in the state of North Carolina, there is a standing prescription at every pharmacy um, that you can walk in and ask for a naloxone kit. You probably have to pay for it or use your insurance for it. Um, but there's a standing prescription statewide. Okay. Um, that anyone can walk into a pharmacy and say, I need a naloxone kit, and you can get one. And, and we need to deregulate the addiction industry, you know, that doctors can't be afraid to treat the disease of addiction. They can't be afraid that the, somehow the government or that their careers are going to be put at risk because they're trying to take care of people with this disease. Yeah. What do you think about this death by distribution bill that's been tossed around in the state legislature? Um, let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> because there have been 60 doctors arrested in the tri-state area. Um, there are many doctors that are serving life sentences or 40 or 60 year sentences because they wrote prescriptions for narcotics to patients, and then the patients went home and overdosed. And, you know, they were 
judged by a jury of their peers. Really, they had 12 doctors judging these doctors. And, and um, you know, you got to watch out for the pendulum swing. Yeah. There are people with chronic pain that need to be treated and yeah. managed. There are bad doctors that overwrite prescriptions. And there has to be a balance between those two. So um, to attribute an addict's overdose death to a specific physician writing a prescription, I mean, you got a million and a half societal dollars invested in a doctor's education. Mm -hmm. And you've got 200 doctors that have been put into prison or taken out of circulation. Many of them needed to be. Many of them needed to be, but not all of them. Yeah. You know, it, it's a touchy subject. Yeah. I guess from like a, many of my harm reduction friends and people that I talk to, um, the biggest concern is just like the, um, we've worked so hard to overcome some, so much of the stigma surrounding harm reduction. We've worked so hard to get Narcan kits distributed all over the state. And, you know, being someone that's comes from Florida and has experienced what happened down there, I've seen like significant change in North Carolina. Um, and then the fear of this death by distribution bill coming, being passed and um, interfering with our current Good Samaritan laws, right? To where drug users will be now be number one, afraid to administer Narcan, number two, afraid to call 911 because of fear of prosecution. Right. And then how does that affect both the individuals who are overdosing, who could potentially find reach recovery, who could potentially experience some relief by the services you guys are offering, but their friends won't pick up the phone because of out of fear of prosecution. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, five guys get together, throw in 20 bucks, get a couple Dude, of points, right? And one that. guy goes to get it, and two of them die because it was mostly fentanyl. And the guy that went to got it, get it gets convicted of first-degree murder and goes to prison. Yeah. And the guy he, he bought it from. And the guy he bought it yeah. from. <clears throat> it just seems like it's like taking us five or ten years back on all the work that we've done in uh, It in completely defend, defeats the purpose yeah. of the Good Samaritan Law, yeah. which is just really sad. It's yeah. definitely regression. I'm going to go far out here, okay, guys? Go for it. And if you don't want to talk about it, I'm totally okay with it. Um, seeing as you're a medical professional and you're currently working with um, MAT, what do you think about the latest research and stuff surrounding the use of psychedelic drugs? in both addiction with like things like ibogaine and ketamine I, I depression. Like, I would like to say that I am not a medical professional. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am just another bozo on the bus with almost six years clean. I ain't nothing but bozo on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I have personal opinions about this, not medical professional pin opinions. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear them. <laughs> I am. No, well, I am. Well, do you want to hear the doctor's opinion? <laughs> no, I want you to go first. Okay. So, um, I, I think that it makes sense logically. So any kind of hallucinotryptamine changes your perception, depression, anxiety, addiction is all an issue of perception, right? Yeah. Um, and taking a hallucinogen can 
change that perception just enough to take yourself out of it. Um, when I was using, when I was a teenager, I wasn't on antidepressants. I took hallucinogens once every six months. Um, and it was when I got clean that since I got clean, I stayed off of medication for two years. And then after that, I was like, I can't keep doing this. My depression and anxiety is real. And I, you know, sought a medical professional to be put on an antidepressant, um, where before I did not, it was not necessary because like my personal experience taking tryptamines helped me with my mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, what were you taking? What kind of, um, all of it. Okay. it like it depends. Yeah. It depends on what I could find. You know, I've taken acid, mushrooms, ketamine, um, DMT, mescaline, peyote. Like, I, I think maybe one or two of the like test chemicals. They were terrible. Never do those. Um, <laughs> but I, like, I really think there's some value in the idea of microdosing small amounts of hallucinogens that change your perception just enough to keep you from being suicidal. I think that there's benefits in that. Yeah. Well, I really personally do. Clarify that, because you're specifically saying use of hallucinogens for treatment of depression, and there's clear science and clear evidence that show that that's probably true. A matter of fact, the FDA approval and experimental studies, especially with X, with uh, uh, NDA and uh, um, ketamine, you know, got ketamine drops and, and dosing for depression. I personally don't think it's a treatment for chronic dopamine reward deficiency yeah. syndrome. Because although you may get a temporary release of dopamine and you may get a change of perception, you're not changing the neurochemistry in mm. the brain. But and so many of those other mental health disorders can truly affect the addiction yeah. piece and, and the I, behavioral piece of addiction. Yeah. Um and I, in most of the like the research shows most of the most of those psychedelics, um, do not help with addiction. Correct. Um, Correct. The the only thing that I've read is they are they have seen significant results using psilocybin to treat nicotine smoking. Well, it's all about behaviors. Um, but that's right? the only thing so close to addiction is all about the behaviors. Well, you know, nicotine's the most addictive. The hardest. So tell me about it. Man. God, but. Remember that addiction is a, a dis, it's a brain disorder, right? You don't make enough dopamine, your dopamine receptors don't mm -hmm. work. The dopamine you make is a little bit defective. There's something wrong with your dopamine system, right? So you always feel like crap. <laughs> and so you take an opiate and you feel better, right? And you want to change the way you feel. It's all about changing the way you feel, right? I don't like the way I feel. Um... I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I'm grieving. I don't like the way I feel. I'm happy, I feel great. <laughs> I am going to shove a chemical in my yeah. face. And recovery is learning how to feel. All of those completely normal, ordinary emotions that everybody on the planet feels without shoving a chemical in your face <laughs> or your arm. So I'm a little bit hesitant to yeah. recommend psychedelics. I have never tried a psychedelic as a person in long-term recovery. But my experience with them prior tells me that um, taking a psychedelic 
removes that I word and it's no longer like about me and it's no longer about all of these circumstances. I feel this, I feel that I, I am uncomfortable in my skin. I can't live in this world. Like you, it kind of like allows you to, to look at the world from a different perspective, right. And kind of take, take yourself out of the, out of the, uh, the, the main role of the movie, right? You're no longer the main, the lead character on the movie. And you kind of tend to see things. And I'm not like, listen, I'm, I'm not, you're the doctor. <laughs> you're yeah. the doctor. Well, let, let's, uh, from a medical perspective, mm-hmm. more research needs to be yeah. done. It's as simple that's as what that. I, and, that's and, what I was And say. so I think it should be actively researched. From that's a spiritual say. perspective, the real magic is to attain the same, exact same state and the same feeling through meditation mm-hmm. and through uh, a conscious contact and through prayer. That's what changes the neurochemistry. You know, you've got 900 known neurochemicals in a human brain, each with dozens of receptors. We understand a little bit about maybe 20 of them. In other words, nobody knows what the fuck's going on in a yeah. human brain. Nobody, right? And you start adding chemicals that change the biochemistry in the brain. I mean, psychiatrist, you can try a little bit of this, try a little bit of that. It's all a crapshoot, man, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, the, we found this works. Isn't that great? It works to do what? Well, it makes me feel better. I don't know. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I've done every psychedelic known to man, and I wouldn't knowingly and willingly ever do another one, yeah. personally. I think the reason that it can like what you were talking about is like not being the main role of the character, like not the main character anymore. It helps with the idea of connection, right? Like the, the whole idea of, um, I am one with everything, all of that hippy dippy stuff. Right. But it's been said, I don't know who said it, but the opposite of addiction isn't recovery. The opposite of addiction is connection. And, in my experience taking tryptamines before I got clean was all about connection to the world, to nature, to my community, to my family. Um, During the times of tripping on psychedelics, that is the one thing that rang true, was that true connection, Um, which is why I can understand why fostering that connection piece is really... um, has what has brought addiction into that conversation more so than just like depression or anxiety or like relationship troubles. You know, MDA used to be prescribed as a marriage counseling medicine. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, um, back hmm, or the beginning of the year, I had, uh, a nice lady from maps, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. She was in Asheville, conducting a presentation around surrounding the conversation about MDMA assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD specifically for PTSD. I truly believe awesome. that. And that's, um, so good, they're, so they're, work. they're like, they're, they're at the phase three clinical trials and they've been, um, approved by the FDA to move forward. And that's why they're in Astral because Astral has been targeted as a, um, well, we have a huge VA hospital area here. to 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 build these to build a MDMA assisted psychotherapy treatment center. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was here to actually train therapists on the facilitation of the drugs. And um, she said the results have just been significant. Phenomenal. Like, Mind-blowing. Like over three out of four, three out of four patients in the clinical trials experienced um, no longer met the criteria for PTSD after completing three doses, which is like one. So they do like a dose, eight hour facilitation with two clinicians. Then they do like um, a therapy session, then a second dose, then a therapy session, a second dose. Well, I mean, have you ever taken ecstasy? Have you ever taken? Well, I mean, MDMA? not uh, only recreationally. Well, yeah, but so, yes. But so even recreationally, there's this the sense of connection that you described is there's yeah. the connection uh-huh. there, and there's like almost a truth serum, mm-hmm. right? And there's a piece where you're processing emotions mm-hmm. in a completely different way, um, which is why I can see why it could be really beneficial for people with PTSD because a lot of that is going back to a situation, and your body feels the same thing. Mm-hmm. You it re-experienced the entire situation. And if you re-experience that entire situation on ecstasy, the process of what's happening would be different yeah. to where like you, you're no longer on ecstasy. You go back to that memory. Mm-hmm. The way your brain has been wired to think about it has been changed because you re-experienced it while under the influence of this. That's drug. exactly what she said. And so yeah. like that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Like, and really promising. It's like kind of fast tracking uh, trauma therapy. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Because like with trauma therapy, it's slowly session over session doing the neural repatterning with specific memories. Yeah. And it just takes a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the actual serotonin dumping probably overwhelms the trauma blocks. That's probably the mechanism by which it works. So, I mean, I think it's awesome for PTSD. I think it should be used in very controlled clinical settings. Yeah. I mean, over, overuse of, of ecstasy is pretty scary. Mm-hmm. You know, you get e And it's the same thing on the streets. You got oh, yeah. the You never know what you're stuff. actually yeah. getting. Uh-huh. You mm. never know what you're actually getting. So pharmaceutical grade MDMA? <laughs> yeah, could oh, you imagine? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> but both, here we are. Both here we of are. you guys here. need to pick up a white chip. I'm I know. Here we are, two addicts, like, going down the rabbit it hole. Is not anything yeah. like that. Here we are going down the rabbit hole. And that's, like, that's what concerns me because, like, we've, I've, had, I tried, I've, I've had these conversations with people, and they light up just like you. And they light up. I get excited about it. And it's, like, at the same time, just like uh, Dr. Tom here just said, is that, I'm fascinated with this stuff because I have a history of psychedelic use. I'm fascinated with all of it, right? I'm fascinated with all of it. However, through my meditate, my daily meditation practice, through my fellowship, through these conversations and the connections that are created at this table right here, mm-hmm. I my life is stable. I'm straight. I don't need, I don't, there's no need for any of that stuff in my life right now. Well, I guess you don't have to pick up a white key tech. Yeah, I'm just interested in. I'm fascinated with the science behind it and the potential to help people who 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 haven't found. I mean, it's taken five years and a shitload of hours on the meditation cushion, and you know what I mean. So, like, can it be? It's a shortcut. (coughs) Is it a shortcut? I guess that's the question. I mean, the thing is, who is it that determines a chemical is dangerous? I mean, they're allowing they're allowing us to give. Serotonin reuptake inhibitors, norepinephrine. Mm-hmm. I mean, how all uh, you go on and on of all these chemicals that are somehow okay 
and licensed by the FDA to be given to human beings for whatever reason, but not this chemical. Mm-hmm. No, this chemical is dangerous. I mean, <laughs> some of them are. Yeah. You know, it's just weird that that uh, they have to go through this whole process yeah. to get it approved. There's a I read a book last summer called by Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind. Mm-hmm. Michael Pollan is an agricultural author. He wrote many. Um, New York Times bestseller books about food and the food industry and the benefits of um, green diets and things like that. His name is Pollen. Pollen, eh, who would have (laughs) thought? That's funny. And the New York Times bestseller, all this stuff, like very famous author. And so um, he wrote a book called How to Change Your Mind where he Mm -hmm. studied psychedelics for a year. And and the, the, the point is that he is a very reputable, like old school, not a person like myself who would be promoting drug use right Mm -hmm. and he goes and he starts writing a a book investigating the history of psychedelics and he found such profound um information that he decided to try it himself right he was sold right so he he tried it and it's all in the book you know he told the whole entire story but just somebody to see somebody of his um experience level of experience kind of stand up for the psychedelic research that's taking place. Um, really kind of like opened my mind and kind of set a precedence to like, hey, this might be something worth investigating a little bit further. Not personally, professionally. Well, yeah. I mean, it's something I've always I've always agreed with. Yeah. Like just from personal experience. Had I known now what I know, had I know, what am I trying to say? Had I... And then, I then what I know then, now I know about now. the drugs, like I don't know if what would have happened when I was using them back in the day, mm. you know. But I guess we say that for any type of. I mean, drug. whenever I did use those type of those type of drugs, it was always very intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never like, oh, I just found this, I'm gonna get fucked up. Woo-hoo. It was all like, I need a shift in my perception right now, and I take a few weeks to plan it out and mm-hmm. then do it. Yeah. Um, it was never like instant, like, oh, let's get a vial of acid. <laughs> <laughs> like it was always like well planned out. There's a reason. I well, re- remember that that traditionally hallucinogenics go back thousands of years, right. and they're always done in very structured religious ceremonies with an intent and a purpose. A vision quest, a sweat lodge, ayahuasca. I mean, they have a goal and a purpose. And um, to just randomly take them at parties, that's everyone pop on. It's scary. Yeah. It's scary. It's dangerous. Um, and you know, you can't recommend that. From a medical perspective, I think it has a place. And from a spiritual perspective and a religious perspective, I think it has a, has a place. But I like to go back to Ram Das. Ram Das talks a lot about yes. Yes. using the Sandos back in the 60s uh, with, uh, with Abby Hoffman. And, and, you know, he said that you get there and then you go away. And then you get there and then you go away. And he didn't want to do that anymore. And, uh, you know, he actually went over to his guru in India, uh, Maharaji, and, Maharaji, and uh, said, well, here, Maharaji, actually, Maharaji went to him and said, I hear you brought some, some medicine from the United States. Give it to me. And Ramdas hadn't told him. He, he didn't know that. Maharaji he just knew. And so he said, okay, well, here you go. Here, take one. And Maharaji took one. He said, give me all of it. So he did like 100 hits, right? And then about an hour later, Maharaji kind of sits around and goes, well, I don't really feel anything, but it's very interesting, and you don't need this anymore. You can do this with meditation. It's a true story. And from that point on, Ram Dass focused on 
meditation as a means for spiritual awakening awareness. And that's what I would advocate. For sure. Absolutely. Well, listen, guys, we're almost at two hours. So. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Does that mean we get to come back? On that note, I would love to have you guys come back. I'd love to come out and uh, check out what you're doing out there. Please maybe, do. Maybe do something from your office or something like that. Next time, I'll come to you. How about that? That'd be great. Yeah, that would be t- yeah. so cool. Um, how can people, if they're interested in additional information about REACH Recovery, if they'd like to come set up uh, an appointment or refer somebody out to you guys, how can they get in touch with you? So our phone number is 828-654-0115. Um, I have that phone connected to me at all times, so I can always set up an appointment. We also have a webpage. It is reachrecoveryashville.com. Um, and you can also send me an email at reachrecoveryashville at gmail.com. Um, we also have a Facebook page, Reach Recovery, and we also have an Instagram. Reach Recovery. Reach Recovery, Asheville. Kick ass. Well, y'all are awesome. I totally enjoyed this. And um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting Yeah, us. thank you. Tons of fun. I would love to do it again. So thank you guys for checking us out. Y'all have a good night. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And a very special thank you to the Comfort Inn of Silva, North Carolina for providing this re- recording space for us each and every week you can find them at 1235 east main street in silver north carolina or by visiting choicehotels.com there's not a better time of the year to visit the mountains of western north carolina than right now and uh, all the leaves are changing back to green everything is in bloom the temperatures are gorgeous if you're in the area consider booking a room with the comfort in for being a recovery ally and supporting community-based organizations like nc raw check us out on instagram twitter you can find us at wnc raw and check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ncraw. Consider becoming an ncraw patron for as little as a dollar a month and supporting our work and helping us grow and expand upon this podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Take care.